I want to give you a divine law. You can write this down. It's not going to be on the screen. It's not in your notes, but it's kind of a compilation of, of what God has shown me through Scripture this week. I believe it to be a divine law, and I think you'll see where I'm going with this. Here's the law. If you want to live, then you have to eat. And if you want to eat, then you have to work. Think about that a little while. Let that soak in. Work is good. It's a good thing to do. There's no civilization can thrive and survive without a strong work ethic among its people. And friends, I'm afraid we've lost that or are in the process of losing that work ethic right here in this country. And that's why we're in trouble. Proverbs 6, verse 6 says, Take a lesson from the ants, you lazy bones. Learn from their ways and be wise. Even though they have no prince, governor, or ruler to make them work, they labor hard all summer, gathering food for the winter. But you lazy bones, how long will you sleep? When will you wake up? I want you to learn this lesson, God says. A little extra sleep, a little more slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will pounce on you like a bandit, and scarcity will attack you like an armed robber. To work is good. Work is necessary. Somebody has to work. In fact, there's a work for everyone to do. You know, one of the amazing things that I got to see in our team who went to missionary or went to Thailand on mission trips several times got to see is that in Thailand, everybody works. Everybody has a job to do. They live by the motto, if you don't work, you don't eat. It's simple math. The Bible is very clear that God worked. There was a time when nothing existed but God. But he created everything that you and I get to enjoy. On day 6 of Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image and to be like us. And they will reign over all life, the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and all the livestock and wild animals and small animals. And so God created human beings in his own image. And he patterned them after himself, male and female, he made them. So as you look at this, and if you look at what is also said in John chapter 1, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were very busy, and they all took part in the good work of creation. And they worked in perfect unity together. Their work was a work where they came together to work together. Uh, it was teamwork. Great example for us as we look at the Trinity God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit working. God also gave the first man work to do. He set a precedent with that. Genesis 2.15, it says, The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and to care for it. He was to be the gardener, the caretaker of the beautiful garden that belonged to God. So before sin, Adam was given a respectable work to do, something that would fulfill him. But then after sin, after they sinned, God told man that work would be a hard thing for them to do, but still something that was necessary and had to be done. God reminds us that working will always be a part of our life. We see this in Genesis 3.17 where God said to Adam, Because you listened to your wife and you ate the fruit that I told you not to eat, 
I have placed a curse on the ground. He says, all your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. All your life you will sweat to produce food until your dying day, and then you will return to the ground from which you came, for you were made from dust, and to the dust you will return. Friends, nowhere in Scripture do you find God that God has a system that pays people not to work. Nowhere. God is a charitable God, and He expects people, His people to be charitable. But God is also a God that believes in work. In Scripture, you will find that charity was essentially the opportunity to go and work. You see this well illustrated in the process of gleaning whereby the needy could go and work to collect the overlooked or cast off or, or leftover grain where God's people were expected to leave behind from their harvest for the benefit of the poor. You find this in Leviticus 19, verse 9. The scripture says, When you harvest your crop, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your fields, and do not pick up what the harvester drops. In the same way, your grapes, your grape crop, do not strip every last branch of grapes from the vine. And do not pick up the grapes that fall to the ground. Leave them for the poor and the foreigners that live among you. For I, the Lord, am your God. So this is my rule, God says. Well, God has established a system of responsibility where people could turn their poverty into productivity by responding to the charitable opportunities provided by others. And so this is the rule. If you could, as a person, work, then biblically, he or she was expected to work. It's a rule that still applies today. If you can work, then biblically, you should and are expected to work. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul reminds us of, of this rule. He said, even while we were with you, we gave you this rule. Uh, he says, whoever doesn't work shouldn't, shouldn't eat. He said, yet we hear that some of you are living idle lives, refusing to work and wasting time meddling in other people's business. In the same way, the Lord Jesus Christ, we appeal to such people. No, he said, we command them, settle down and get to work and earn your own living." good words it is a good thing to work it is a biblical thing to work unfortunately there are a lot of people who do not understand this rule and those who do are not wanting to participate in it let me show you another verse that most people don't understand philippians chapter 2 verse 12 paul says therefore my dear friends as you have always obeyed not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. He says, continue to work your salvation with fear. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well, what in the world does this mean? Well, Paul is telling us to put our salvation to work. We're to work it out. Now, he doesn't say that we're supposed to work for our salvation, but instead we're to work out our salvation Salvation is by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Amen? He's not telling you that you have to work for your salvation. But what he is saying is that once God gives you your salvation, 
that there is a ministry work for you to do, for each of us to do. Now, do you remember what the Apostle Paul said about work and grace? If you don't, I'll remind you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. Paul said this. He said, whatever I am now, whatever God has brought me to be, he said, it is all because God poured out his special favor, which is grace. He poured it out on me, Paul said, and not without results. For I have worked harder than all the other apostles, and yet it was not I, but God who was working through me by his grace. It was God's grace that was bearing fruit in Paul's life. And God had not wasted his grace on Paul. God had made a good investment by pouring his grace out on Paul. It was Paul's understanding of and his appreciation for God's grace through Jesus Christ that inspired him to go and do the work that he did for the Lord. Listen, when you can, when you can come to fully appreciate the grace of God, that is when you're going to be empowered and motivated to serve the Lord. That is when you get up and you go to work. Amen? That is when it happens. We're going to be in Hebrews today, and Hebrews chapter 10 is an amazing chapter that I believe every believer needs to, to read it carefully and then apply it to your life. In these first 18 verses of, the, of this chapter, the writer acknowledges and he affirms the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ and the work that the Lord did, that amazing work of redemption. Look at chapter 10 verse 11 with me. He says, under the old covenant, the priest, he stands and he ministers before the altar day after day after day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again and again. He said, which can never take away sins. But then in verse 12 he said, but our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sin, good for all time. And then he sat down at the place of highest honor next, or at, at, the, at God's right hand. And then he says in verse 13, There he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. I want you to notice that the single sacrifice of Jesus' life on the cross was sufficient to pay for the forgiveness and salvation of every last soul that's ever lived on this planet. That salvation is available. It was available then. It's available today. That's why we're doing shoe boxes. Because millions of kids are coming to know Christ because of that effort. It's available, friends. It's, it's not automatic. We have to make an effort to get that news to them. Jesus here, we see his atoning death was completed. It never needs to be repeated. He completely bought and paid for your salvation and it is available. And that gift of salvation is eternal. It's not a yo-yo salvation that God gives and snatches back. Now, while Jesus waits for his enemies to be humbled and made a footstool under his feet, what are we supposed to be doing? What are we supposed to be doing in the midst of all this craziness while we wait for the Lord to return? Can I just say, we need to be working. We need to be busy. And that is what the writer addresses next in this chapter. You see, he well knew that the recipients and the readers of this letter, both past and pre present, would be struggling while we wait on the Lord to return. I believe that that struggle is getting uh, more difficult every day for us who are believers. 
None of us know when Jesus is coming back, but we know he's coming back. We know he is. He promised. But we also do know this. Christians all over the world are struggling in this fallen world that we live in. It's bad, but it's getting worse. And it's going to be worse the closer we get to the tribulation time. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 3 is an illustration of that. It was written because there were Christians standing up and doing a good work in their day. And because of that, they were being persecuted and some in prison. Look at what the author says. He says, don't forget about those in prison. Suffer with them as though you were there yourself. Share the sorrow of those being mistreated as though you, you feel the pain in your own bodies. Persecution was real then, friends, and it's, it's becoming very real, and it's going to be even more real even here in this own country. In 1 Peter chapter 5, that's why Peter said, Be careful and watch out for attacks from the devil, your great enemy. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for some victim to devour. Take a firm stand against him and be strong in your faith. And remember that your Christian brothers and sisters all over the world are going through the same kind of suffering that you are. Friends, Peter warns, be alert. Resist the devil. Friends, I want you to understand that every person who believes and accepts Jesus Christ is immediately transferred from Satan's realm into the family or the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And that's when we begin to wear a target on our back. The devil prowls around as a, a roaring lion would do, looking for victims to devour, and he loves to chew on Christians. He certainly wants us to not grow up as disciples and advance the kingdom of God on earth. He hates the church. He hates God, and he hates you, and he doesn't want you to grow in, either, in any way, especially for the Lord. So, Christian, let me just say this. Don't think you can fly under Satan's radar. Uh, you're in his crosshairs and he's going to try to do everything he can to keep you from becoming who God wants you to be. He'll destroy you if you allow him to do that. And so the writer knew that and being a part of the church, he knew what, he, he, he saw Satan being very busy in the congregations of churches and he could see the effects. He knew that believers were struggling with all kind of trials and that they had become complacent in many ways, kind of kicking it in neutral and not doing the work that they should be doing for the Lord. And he knew that so many were neglecting their salvation and its work and refusing to grow up spiritually as they should be. And many were simply falling by the wayside as victims. So what did he do? Well, he gives us, and he, he gave them, and he, gave, he gives us a reminder of who we are in Christ and what being a Christian is all about. And he begins that in verse 19 of Hebrews chapter 10. Look at what the writer wrote. He said, and so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house. Let me just stop there and ask you this question. It's a personal question. Have you truly put your trust in Jesus Christ? Do you trust him with your life? Do you trust him with your eternity? Do you trust him with your body and your soul? 
Are you living your life for Jesus? Are you? It's important that you answer that question. If you haven't, there's still time. Don't put off what you need to do about trusting Jesus until another day because we're not guaranteed tomorrow, are we? If you have accepted Christ, let me encourage you. I just say praise God. Let me encourage you to hang in there and don't give up. Jesus really is all that you're ever going to need. I promise you that. Scripture proves that to be true. I know you face challenges in your life every day that threatens you to the very core of your faith. We all do. You know, as I sat the other day preparing this message, I couldn't help but think about Amy and Joey Hutchison and all that they're going through. If you know anything about Amy and her battle with cancer, you know that life right now for them is about as real as life can get. Do you know what? So is Jesus. They're not running from him. They're running to him. And I praise God for that. Your situation can overwhelm you. Tough relationships can wear you out. And too often life just gets into the way. But in the midst of your sometimes miserable moments, I want you to, I want to encourage you to remember that Jesus is really enough. He is. And he's got you, and he will never let you down. He will never forsake you. I want you to just stop and think about for a minute what the blood of Christ and it being shed for you has accomplished for you. The, the writer reminds us that as a result of the sacrificial death of Jesus, you have direct access into the very presence of God. You don't have to go through me. You don't have to go through a priest or anybody else. You can go straight to the Lord. And nothing nor anyone can ever come between you what does it say we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of jesus by his death jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place the writer is obviously a jewish believer and he's writing to jewish christians who would have understood that the imagery of worshiping in the tabernacle or the temple you see, they would have all known that you just couldn't come skipping in to the presence of God in his most holy place. In that day, one time a year, and then only one person, the high priest, could enter in and go behind the curtain to minister to God. Well, if you know anything about tradition, tradition says that that high priest would have bells on the bottom of his robe. So that as he moved around, you could hear where he was going and what he was doing. But whenever the high priest went back, he first had to be ceremonially clean. And then they would get him ready to go in behind the curtain and they would tie a rope around his ankle. Because if he went behind the curtain unclean before God to minister to God, God would strike him dead because God is a holy God. And he will have no place with sinfulness. And so if they stopped hearing the, the, the high priest moving around behind the curtain, they drug him out with that robe from under the curtain. Things have changed. By the blood of Jesus Christ, our great high priest, that curtain that separated us from God has been removed. Now what does that mean? It means that we have been granted access into the presence of God. A holy God. It means that we can now know God personally and come into his presence confidently and boldly. And God wants us to. Notice verse 21. It says, and since we have a great high priest who rules over God's 
house. That is a significant statement. You see, when the flesh of Jesus was torn on the cross, and when his life was sacrificed, God tore that veil in the temple from the top to the bottom, making it possible for us to have a new and life-giving way that is open to all of us who believe. We can now come to God through Jesus Christ, our high priest who is over the house of God. Hebrews 3, 6 says, By, But Christ, as the Son, is in charge of God's entire household. Christ lives in heaven, and today he intercedes on our behalf. In chapter 7 of Hebrews, verse 23, it clearly says, Another difference is that there were many priests under that old system. But when a priest died, another had to take his place. Verse 24 said, But Jesus remains a priest forever. His priesthood will never end. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save everyone who comes to God through him. He lives forever to plead with God on our behalf. Praise the Lord. Because of what Jesus has done, we have an open invitation to come into the very presence of God the Father. And because of that wonderful privilege, the writer here invites us to take advantage of that amazing opportunity. And I want you, I want to point out some things that he says to us. In verse 22 of chapter 10, he reminds us that we should and can go right into the presence of God. Listen to what the scripture says. He says, and since we have a great high priest who rules over God's people, let us go right into the presence of God with true hearts full, fully trusting him. For our evil consciences, our sinful souls have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean and our bodies have been washed with pure water. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is an open invitation for us to, to come in straight into the presence of God. How do we do that right now? In the future, we'll be able to do that physically, I believe. But right now, we do that through prayer. We do that through prayer. And I know we, we often have a hard time believing that God, the creator of the universe, that he would be interested in our daily concerns and the decisions that we make every day in our lives. But, but friends, he is. And that is why he's given us the beautiful privilege, the beautiful, precious gift of prayer Way too often we don't realize how much prayer matters to God. We don't realize how much it matters to us. We don't always understand how God wants to work through prayer. But David, King David did. I want you to listen to just a couple things that he said. Psalms 18 verse 6. David said, But in my distress, he said, I cried out to the Lord. Yes, I prayed to my God for help, and he heard me from his sanctuary. My cries reached his ears. Praise God. He hears us when we call on him. He said in Psalms 118 verse 21, I thank you for answering my prayers and saving me. Oh, how many times did God save David's life from physical harm and certainly spiritually as well. Psalms 138 verse 3, he said, When I prayed, you answered me and you encouraged me by giving me the strength I need. We can go to God through prayer anytime, anywhere, any place. We can and we should. He goes on in verse 23 to say, Let us hold tightly to the sure hope without wavering. To our sure hope without wavering. He says, Without wavering, let us tightly, let us hold tightly to the hope 
that we say we have. For God can be trusted to keep his promise. Well, how do we do that? How do we hold tightly on those things? I think we do that by remembering the promises of God. Know them, but remember them. Junior Hill wrote, Promises are never better than the character of the one who makes them. It doesn't matter how much faith someone has if the one in whom that faith is placed cannot be trusted. As children of God, the issue must never be the sincerity of our trust, but in the steadfastness of the one we trust. Friends, our God can be trusted. Amen? He will never fail us. He's always kept His promises. He never will let us down. His promises are always certain. God's promises are a precious window through which we may see the likeness of God and understand more about Him. If you want to know what God is like, the best way to look at that is look at His promises that He has made to you. It is impossible for God to lie. We struggle with that throughout our life, and unfortunately, I'm sure everybody in this room has told a lie at some point, some more than others. But God never has told a single lie. He cannot lie. It is not in His character to do so. What God was like yesterday and what he promises to be like tomorrow is nothing more or less than what he has promised to be and do for us today. In Malachi chapter 3 verse 6, he says, I am the Lord and I do not change. Who can say that but God? What a profound statement. God's promises are absolutely reliable in every way and at the center of his promises is the absolute assurance that our salvation in Christ Jesus is for all times and for all eternity. It's been said that what gives us hope and strength is not our own self-reliance or thinking that we can earn our salvation, but rather the fact that God has sealed our eternal security, our salvation through the indwelling Holy Spirit that lives in us. Paul affirmed that with these words in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. He says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed, sealed for the day of redemption. Praise God for all of his promises. And praise God for the salvation he makes available to us. Paul, or the writer of Hebrews goes on in verse 24 to say, Let us think of ways to motivate each other acts of love and good works the scripture actually says think of ways to encourage one another to outburst of love and good deeds well how do you do that how do you do that how do you encourage people that way well i think one of the best ways to do it is walk up put your hand on their back pat them on the back and then share some beautiful words of encouragement with them friends you don't have to look very far to find somebody that needs encouraging right and you know, encouragement is one of the most needed ministries in the church. Just think about how many people would come to church if we would just encourage them a little bit. How many of our people who used to come but are now even afraid to come back because of COVID and other things. I had somebody tell me the other day, you know, Pastor, when, when we first uh, stopped coming to church, it was because of COVID. But I got to be honest, we've just gotten out of the habit of coming and we're just not coming. We need to encourage them to come back. And the best way to do that, put your little arm on their back and just encourage them. And, and, and you'd be amazed at what could happen. 
you would be amazed at what a little pat on the back and a few good words of encouragement would do to turn a person around and lift up their spirits. I, I was walking over to the new building over here on Monday to get ready for teaching faith on Monday night. And as I got right up next to the porch, I noticed a pickup truck come in from this side and was driving over and it stopped. And I didn't recognize the truck and I, I didn't recognize uh, the person in it to begin with. And I turned around and walked back toward the truck and, and, and I, I saw who it was then. It was, it was Joey. And Joey stepped out of the truck and I thought, oh no, I hope he's not going to share some bad news. And, and Joey stepped out and before I could say, Joey, how you doing? He just reached and he grabbed me. And he hugged me, and he hugged me, and he hugged me, and he hugged me. And I didn't think he was ever going to turn me loose, and that was okay. But finally, I said to him, Joey, do we need to go sit down and talk? And Joey turned me loose, and he stepped back, and he said, no, Pastor, I just needed a hug. I just needed a hug. Thank you for being here so I could hug you. I thought, wow. I'm sure that there's somebody in your past that's hugged you and gave you words of encouragement. Why not pass that on? There are so many people that need a hug and need some encouragement. I encourage you to do that. Paul wrote these words. Dear brothers and sisters, I close my letter with these last words. These were the last words that Paul wrote to the Christians at Corinth. This is what he said. He said, rejoice. Rejoice. No matter how bad it is, rejoice. Why? Because we have a high priest in heaven who intercedes for us. Rejoice. He says, change your ways. We all need to change some, right? God is shaping us, and we need to allow his shaping hand to change us into the image of his son. And then he says this, encourage each other. Encourage each other. That is your job as a Christian to encourage the people around you who are believers and even those that are not. And he says, live in harmony and peace. Live in harmony and peace. And then he says this, then, after you've done these things, then the God of love and peace will be with you. Which indicates to me that if you don't practice the things that he just said, you might be walking alone. God will walk with you if you'll be a godly person and do godly things. Notice this one last thing he says in verse 25. The writer of Hebrews said, let us not neglect worshiping together. The entire verse says it this way. Let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage and warn each other, especially now that the day of his coming back again is drawing near. So why do we need to do that? Well, we need to do that because we need to do that. We need to be together. We also need to do it because God expects us to do it. But we also need to do it because in doing that, coming together, it prepares us for life in heaven. Think about that. Now, let me just say this. Church attendance is not going to get you into heaven. You can attend every service and every activity that we have at Harvest and, and if that's all you're doing is attending, it's not going to get you into heaven. Sorry, <laughs> it's not. Instead, we're commanded to gather together 
Because following Jesus is all about relationships. It's all about relationships. First and foremost, being a Christian is about a relationship with God. And if you miss that, then following Jesus is going to do you no good. Right behind that, following Jesus is about a relationship with other people. It's about a relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ. It is your relationship with others that deepens your relationship with God. And, and it is your relationship with God that enables you to rightly relate to other people. Those relationships are interdependent. They depend on each other. You can't have one without the other. If you want to be right with God, you need to work on your relationships with men. If you want to be right with men, you need to work about on your relationship with God. Look at the Ten Commandments. The first four are vertical. They deal with your relationship with God. The next six talk about the horizontal relationship that you're to have with other believers. And notice that that makes a cross. It takes Christ living in us for us to get along with God and get along with each other. Isn't that beautiful? Our coming together invites others to come along with us. And so we set an example by faithfully coming to church. I, I, I've said this many times. Your cars in the parking lot on Sunday morning makes a statement. If you're in a new community and you're looking for a place to eat and you find a restaurant, do you go to a restaurant where there's no cars in the parking lot in the middle of the day? Or do you go when it's full? If there's a lot of people there, it says food's good. <laughs> if there's nobody there, it says food's bad. You don't want to go there. We make a statement. We make a statement by coming to the house of God. Vance Pittman, who started Hope Baptist Church in Las Vegas 21 years ago, the same year that we started Harvest, has written these words. He said, we gather together with other believers as we gather together with other believers, God uses that experience to invite us into deeper levels of intimacy with himself. He said, we don't go to church to go to heaven, but in one sense, our involvement in, church, in a church family is preparing us for heaven. Man, if you, if you can't get along and enjoy brothers and sisters here, you're going to be bored in heaven if you make it in. <laughs> Think about this. What's eternity about? What's eternity about? It is simply enjoying a relationship with God while in fellowship with God's people at a much deeper level of intimacy. So listen. Gathering in God's house with brothers and sisters in Christ is really the best way to get a taste of what is yet to come. Heaven's going to be a beautiful place. Number one, because Jesus is going to be there. But number two, because all the believers from the past, the present, and the future will be gathered around the throne of God. What a beautiful, beautiful picture that is. What a blessing.